0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud.
1: This election didn't just change a government, it
0: was a green slide.
2: Safe Liberal seat, two term incumbent, independent.
0: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies
1: will be squarely aimed at the Forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
0: Welcome to the Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wiradjuri Country.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation and PK. This week, it's a case of another podcast, another interest rate rise. Um, the government, of course, is assuring us that the bread and butter budget is coming and it's coming quite soon, October 25. But is it actually still going to be a bread and butter budget or something a little different, maybe quite different? Will there be a seismic announcement around tax cuts? Well, we're going to get into the tax debate with Phil Corey from the Fin Review a little later. We sure will, and it's quite a doozy of a debate, so I'm looking forward to it. But
0: but there's been other stories too this week, Fran. Um, there was something other than the economy making headlines. We had the news, or it looked more like a leak, a lot of leaking, uh, that the government is planning a repatriation mission for Australian citizens that are stuck in those camps in northern Syria. This is the women and the children who've been there since the fall of the Islamic State group in 2019.
2: Yeah, and they're stuck in the most terrible conditions as we've seen through sort of various documentaries. But it's a mission, it's quite controversial this really, it's a mission the Morrison government had refused to take because they declared it was too dangerous for anyone given the job of going in to bring these women and children out because of of where they were. But also, PK, some in the government believe that these women and children could pose a threat to Australia's national security in the future. They are, after all, the wives and the children of ISIS fighters. Uh, Some have been radical in the past. We know that. Some people believe we shouldn't sort of bring this burden of potential risk home. And we're seeing that some of the Assyrian people who were brought to Australia for safety because they'd been absolutely brutalised and terrorised by ISIS fighters at the height of this conflict are saying, please don't bring these people home. The problem is, PK, these are Australians. If they're a security burden, they are Australia's security burden to manage, just like other countries have taken it on and repatriated their citizens. The Kurds who are operating some of the camps have been directly asking Australia to get these people out, to to shoulder this burden. Other countries have done it. France has done it. Germany's done it. Turkey's done it. The US has done it. In fact, several years ago now, America very publicly pressured Australia to essentially, you know, pull our weight here. They even offered to send in their own troops to manage this evacuation of our citizens. But the Morrison government then refused. Peter Dutton as Home Affairs was a key decision maker in that resistance and really hasn't changed his position. I don't
0: think. No, and and this mission is one with a very long public backstory. The current government won't talk much publicly about the operation and I, I respect that, actually, because it is a sensitive operation. You do not want to... If you've made the decision, and they clearly have, you don't want to put at risk the Australians who are going to have to actually
2: execute the mission and that's the sensitivity here. If this is a leak, PK, that's quite potentially dangerous, isn't it, that this is become known now because Mm. this is going to be a staged operation too. That's
0: right. So the government has been reluctant to give details, although they have confirmed that that is their position to to bring these women and children home and then of course there is a, the point you make Fran about they're our citizens, well you know there's also a a big debate going on about whether they willingly went there, the women, or whether some were actually coerced Uh, Look, the truth is there are different stories in that cohort, right? Like it's not just one story about about how they uh, came to be there. Mm. Um, But the former government uh, makes the point that they were willing participants. Tanya Plibersek told me this week, you know, there was coercion with these women. And then there's children who are just, and no one would contest this, are just absolutely innocent victims of whatever parental decisions were made. And um, I feel for children enormously. These are Australian citizens, right? But other countries have done it, Fran. Now, Peter Dutton has been calling for more funding to our intelligence agencies like ASIO. If the government does go ahead with this, he says repatriating these families will strain intelligence budgets and, you know, makes a sort of practical suggestion that puts pressure on labour. We are going to talk about that more with Phil because it's a really contentious area of
2: policy isn't it Fran? Well national security is always dangerous for Labor. We've seen that right back from the so-called you know Tampa election when John Howard, off the back of the 9-11 and then the Tampa arriving, really just switched the tables, turned the tables on Kim Beasley and, and defeated him over these issues of national security. And it's brought problems for Labor ever since. So Labor being accused of being soft on terror, um, of being, you know, opening the the gates to uh, illegal asylum seekers. It's often caused Labor troubles politically and they tiptoe around these issues generally. Um, in this case, it looks as though they're going to make this move, I think, off the back of advice from our allies, as well as I mentioned, the pressure from the US. Um, but that's not gonna stop um, the opposition raising questions. And and as I say, already some of the communities here in Australia are protesting. They don't want this to happen. So this is difficult to manage, but it's going to have to be dealt with in the answer. I don't think it's just to leave those those women and children, children in particular, in those terrible, terribly dangerous situations there in, um, in, in Syria. Um, PK, another event this week definitely worth noting is the 10-year anniversary of the misogyny speech by Julia Gillard. Let's just remind ourselves of some of what the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard said when she stood in the Parliament. It was in a, a debate with Tony Abbott at the time. This is on October the 9th in 2012. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The Leader of the Opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. PK on this 10 year anniversary women young and old are revisiting this moment it 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 resonated right around the world what's your memory of it were you in the parliament at that time were you listening w- to that speech
0: i was listening to the speech on the television though i wasn't in the the sitting in the press gallery although i wish i was um look You know, at the time, I think it's fair to say that the way that the media, with some exceptions, but broadly, and it's a very broad statement I'm making, interpreted that speech missed the cultural resonance. And I think a lot of journalists have kind of owned up to that. Uh, Mm. I think it was seen through the myopic day to day. uh, Remember, she was actually defending Peter Slipper the Speaker at the time. I'm not going to go through all of the allegations. She wasn't defending him per se, but there was. it was all part of that broader parliamentary debate. And so I think uh, political reporters were so stuck in the day-to-day politics and, and the pressure on this government, the Gillard government, of which there was a lot of pressure on that government, that mm. it was seen through that prism. It was not seen through the wider lens, which it now is and should be, in my view, um, which is that here was Tony Abbott on the record, I think, for a long time for, you know, advocating even for women's reproductive rights not to be uh, as as liberal as they are in our country, for instance, standing up and making comments about uh, misogyny and Julia Gillard, a female prime minister, uh, uh, under siege on the basis of gender often, standing up to that misogyny and calling it out. And it was hugely significant. So I had two sides of myself, which I'll out now, One side of myself that I own was seeing this through the prism of day-to-day politics, Um, a blunder, I think, and also my very, and I'm very open about this, feminist side that did feel that fire of her response and did see this woman standing up against a barrage of gendered attacks. And so it's built and it means a lot to people and I see that in my 13-year-old daughter who knows about that speech, who's watched that speech. It is very much a cultural moment for our country. How did you view it, Fran?
2: Well, I was overseas at the time, actually, and, and when I caught the news of it, I was struck by how, how quickly it had gone global. And then I checked on the reporting at home and could see that the, the global reaction immediately was very different to the reaction of, of some of my colleagues, like you at home, and was trying to understand that from a distance. But I think it was, you know, th- this was an emotion, emotion charged speech. I actually spoke to Julia Gillard. Publicly at a public event about it just a few months later. She was still Prime Minister and it was clear. I mean, she she acknowledged that she, at the time, didn't realise the cultural impact of the words. She did not realise that this would resonate in such a way globally. She didn't set out to make a culturally significant speech about misogyny. That's not what she'd been doing. She'd had a few notes ready because she'd anticipated Tony Abbott at some point would ma- mount an attack on her around Slipper and around her integrity. It was not a new theme for, for Abbott. In his attack on her. Um, so she launched. But but the words were so infused with the sort of the anger and the frustration of all those months of sexism that she'd experienced from, particularly from the conservative right, from people like Alan Jones, you know, who'd said the most disgusting things. Um, Julia Gillard was still grieving at this point for the loss of her father, who she was very close to. Alan Jones had referenced his death. Uh, not long before despicably in one of the attacks on her when he said her dad, you know, had died of shame. And then Tony Abbott used that phrase in his uh, speech in the parliament that day. He said every day she supported Peter Slipper was another day of shame for a government that should already have died of shame. And you could see Julia Gillard blanch at that, you know, when he used that phrase. And 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 she launched and it was the the raw emotion with this so so it, it she hadn't realized the impact at the time since of course it's been brought home to her because it is as you say culturally significant here and around the world hillary clinton has said you know it was it was one of the platforms to launch the me too movement julia gillard has been uh, having a, a big public event around this this week because of the anniversary. And, and she, she said these words. We're recording this on Thursday. She said these words last night. She said, it's become your anthem of defiance when you are subject to a sexist slur. And I think that's a, a great description. It is an anthem of defiance. That term not now, not ever is, is used in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of frames. And, and that comes from the misogyny speech. So, you know, an incredibly significant moment and a set of words we didn't know at the time, but it become very much an underpinning of the, um, the sort of the revitalization of women's speaking out that we're seeing yeah. in the last couple of years. And and to stand up and to call it out—a rallying yeah. cry, really—for so
0: many women. Uh, a rallying as I cry. Say, that's a
2: great description of it.
0: Yeah, and to and and that and that conflict inside of how I identified it, and I think other journalists would would see it similarly, um, speaks to that sort of conflict of the shift that we've seen in our own media. I mean, you know, Julia Gillard makes the point too, speaking this week. We're recording this on a Thursday, that in fact she doesn't believe a female Prime Minister would be uh, allowed to be subjected to the kind of sexism she was subjected mm. to now. And that speaks to the big shifts we've seen in our own tolerance or uh, post-MeToo me of this culture. And it's still <laughs> got a long way to go, can I say. We're not, like, living, living our best lives yet, I don't think, women. But... That has changed and, you know, sometimes the sad, tragic thing for me as I reflect on life is that some people have to be the people who are subjected to this stuff for others later down the track not to be subjected to the same level of it. And unfortunately, that is what's happened for her.
2: Yeah, and I think too that, you know, as as someone who was reporting on it, like you were engaged in the debate at the time, um, I think it's not just post Me Too. I actually think it's post Gillard has changed the way it would be not allowed again anymore because I think there was a sense of shock and then later some shame or regret afterwards that you know, there wasn't more defence of the sexism directed at this our first female Prime Minister. You know, that, that there were protests out the front that opposition leaders and others stood in front of signs that said, ditch the witch, ditch the bitch, you know. I mean, it was just shocking behaviour that she was subjected to. And too often I, for one, sort of checked myself and sort of didn't launch into the defence that I would automatically because of my feminist views Because, you know, you didn't want to be seen to be playing the gender card. That was a phrase that was around a lot. I don't think we'd say that anymore. I don't think we'd do that anymore. I think Julia Gillard, the way she was sort of treated in her prime ministership, um, the way that ended, a lot of us kind of got a bit of a wake up. And, And since then, of course, we've had the Me Too movement. We've had, you know, Grace Tamers, Australian of the Year, urging us all to speak out loudly, use our voice and, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And I think Julie Gillard's right. Our next female Prime Minister will not suffer that degree of sexism.
0: No, I hope not. Thank
2: God. And I hope we also have
0: one at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. you know, no, we've just got a new Prime Minister. I'm not making a commentary about that. I'm just saying, generally, women in leadership is what I'm talking about. All right, Fran, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Phil Curry, political editor for the Australian Financial Review, welcome to the party
2: room again. Oh, thanks Patricia. Friend, Phil, great to have you back. Phil, the government, Pika and I were mentioning this earlier, the government Mm. plans to repatriate the women and children who are stuck in Syria, they've been there for years in the most horrendous and dangerous conditions, it should be said. The opposition, though, reminds us that these women, or at least some of them, are the widows of Islamic State fighters. They're going to go in hard on this. Here's the Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, setting the tone, I think, for the government this week uh, with PK on breakfast.
0: I think it's very concerning. It's not something that I was prepared to do when I was the minister responsible for a number of reasons. That included that I wasn't prepared to risk uh, Australian officials going in to Syria to do what they needed to do to get these people out I was concerned about radicalisation, not just of the women, but potentially of the uh, children. And thirdly, I was concerned about the risk of these people coming back to Australia because they may not have been de-radicalised.
2: So, Phil, that's the the list of the concerns that stopped the then Morrison government doing this for years. Now it looks like it's going to happen. But as we mentioned earlier, national security issues in the past have caused problems for Labor politically. What's the politics here for Labor, do you think? Oh
1: look, probably just as you described, Fran, that it's not their strength and it's an it's an easy button to push for the coalition and has been over the years, you know, going back to 9-11, you know, best part of two decades now. I'm not sure, though, whether it's really a front of mind issue for the public. Um, you know, it's not topical. We, you know, we've seen these things wax and wane in terms of their political importance over the years. I mean, asylum seekers is your classic one, you know, when the boats are arriving, it's red hot and and the, the public gets fairly hostile to the whole thing. But when they haven't come for many, many years, people start to get sympathetic about the people still, you know, languishing in Nauru. And and I, and I think this sort of has a similar similar feel about it. You know, these people have been there a long time. Um, they are our citizens. We do, you know, everyone else has sort of had to, you know, deal with their own people stuck in these camps. And we probably, you know, even though we told them not to go and they shouldn't have gone. And yeah, you know, and some some of them are bad. You know, we we we've got to own them. And uh, you know, I I am not sure. You know, it just depends how hard they push it. I, I know I know as Peter Dutton said um, on Wednesday that he'd been given the briefing from ASIO about, and he was more convinced than ever they shouldn't be coming home after that briefing. I don't know whether he was supposed to speak out of school like that. And obviously, Peter Dutton has a you know, fairly solid and recent history in national security. But um, I guess. The government has to just, you know, make sure that all these people are surrounded with all the appropriate, you know, uh, security apparatus. And as I understand, they've all agreed to be monitored and put under control orders and things like this. So uh, it'll hinge, Fran, on whether something goes wrong. If someone comes back and causes Mm. trouble or gets implicated in a plot, then it will backfire. But if they just come home and we never hear from them again, uh, I can't see the politics being too bad.
0: Yeah, because that's a good point, Phil. It's about the way it plays out. You would think, though, that the Albanese government isn't going into this blind, given they're so alive to the politics. Uh, I would be surprised that they would have been briefed that this is really highly risky for them and they would still be doing it, right?
1: Yeah, but it's probably the right thing to do too, you know, and uh, yeah, ultimately, and yeah, the responsible thing to do. So there may be a dividend in that as well. But um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's yeah, certainly not without risk. No, nothing in politics is.
2: Well, nothing with politics is and, and nothing around the issues of national security or um, ISIS fighters certainly is without risk. Um, I mentioned earlier the United States had put a degree of pressure, quite public pressure on Australia over the years to do this or to allow the US to do this on our behalf. Um, but the, um, the then Morrison government was, was citing the security risk, as you said. Um, and some of the groups here in Australia are nervous about this. The Syrian refugees who were brought home here after they'd been brutalised by ISIS are speaking out and saying, please don't bring these people into our midst. But there is another security argument too, that if you leave young children in these places where radicalization mm. is going on and they're at large, then they become ongoing risks or future risks too. So there's, That's right. there's, there's a lots of arguments around here and I, I think you're right. It's hopefully, there's already been um, some unaccompanied minors brought home uh, last year or so. We haven't heard much about that. You know, if if it all keeps quiet and if the security risk can be managed, then, you know, you are definitely right. This is the right thing to do. People can, our citizens, particularly children, cannot be left in such horrendous and dangerous places. Hmm. I agree. You remember, Fran, I mean, I, I covered extensively the David Hicks saga
1: from the moment he was captured to the moment he was released. I read extensively over that for over a decade. And I wouldn't put Hicks in, at all in the category of ISIS or anything close to it. He was just a, a silly boy. but. Um, but remember, there's all these warnings, if he comes back here, et cetera, and we haven't heard hide nor hair of him since he came home and he was just grateful to come home and, you know, get out of Guantanamo Bay. And I suspect that will be the case with a lot of these these women, but maybe not all of them. But I'm not privy to the security briefing, so I'm probably, probably talking out of my hat. But um, it will just depend on how they behave.
0: It It ultimately always depends on the behaviour. Let's pivot, pivot, mm. I hate that word, so overused, but I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> Um, the topic and talk about, well, why don't we do it? The budget. Can we do it? Mm, Let's talk about the budget. Not long now. No, it's not at all. And the the, uh, second budget for this year, how exhausting, Um, for all of those uh, Treasury boffins who have to do their second budget this year. The October 25th budget uh, is not very long away. We've just had another interest rate rise, 0.25% to a nine-year high of 2.6% people are hurting, um, there's no doubt mm. about it. No matter how much Jim Chalmers tried to manage expectations about this budget being sustainable, people will want and expect some good news, some may want some help. This is a very difficult budget to deliver, right, in this current climate.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think Chalmers is being disciplined in terms of not promising to do stuff that's only going to make inflation worse. I mean, they're just going to use it to... Um well, up until last week until they changed their language this week, but they were just going to use it just to implement the cost of living promises they took to the election, which were predominantly the childcare subsidy increase and, and the lowering of the cost of prescription medicines. You've got to remember too, Patricia and, and Fran, that at this, as we speak, as we sit here, people are getting these lamito payments that, that Morrison and Frydenberg rolled over for another year. Um, that's $8 billion of checks of up to $1,800 for everyone earning up to $120,000 being paid out to people on the back of their tax returns just, just recently filed. So there is you know a fair bit of significant cost of relief living going into the economy. Now, it's funny no one talks about it in government because it wasn't theirs. You know, it belonged to the other bloke. But that's not insignificant. Um, I'm surprised they don't make more of it. But the risk is, of course, and, and uh, that, that this stuff, while it helps, it also makes the situation worse because it makes inflation worse. And that's the sort of balance beam Jim Chalmers is sort of walking on at the moment uh, as he prepares the budget.
2: Yeah, but, you know, it's also, they don't want to talk about it because it wasn't theirs, but also we Mm. know it's an an age-old truth, isn't it? That people, you know, pocket a payment and then move on and say what's next because the pain doesn't alleviate with one payment. So there's also that going on. Um, Let's talk about the stage three tax Mm. cuts because uh, the language is changing. They seem to be making quite a spectacular re-entry into the debate. (laughs) The government's language is clearly changing around this. Here's the finance minister, Katie Gallagher, on RM Breakfast on Wednesday. Across the budget, we will make the right decisions for the economic circumstances of the time. We have not changed our position on stage three, but we are finalising a budget. And I think the Treasurer and I have been upfront with some of the challenges and some of the changes we've been seeing in the economy that are front of mind for us. And we can't ignore those and we won't ignore them because we are going to do the right thing, not just uh, for the budget, but the right thing for the Australian people. Okay. And Phil, she went on to hmm. say within hmm. that interview, we haven't changed our position on the tax cuts yet, hmm. yet. Hmm. And at that point, my ears pricked up. Hmm. What is going on here?
1: Well, first thing, well, credit to you, Patricia, because you're the first one that, that, that not flagged this on Insiders on Sunday. Thanks when, for you, noticing, <laughs> Phil. Hats when off. You, when you said, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I wasn't watching, uh, to be honest, but I heard about it, I heard what you said, and I thought, no, and I chased it down myself and, and verified it, so yeah, kudos to you. But um, Well, look, I always it, think,
0: it, Phil, <laughs> yeah, generally, <laughs> I did not say that not knowing it was true. I just want to make no, clear. No, no, uh, no, yeah, absolutely. I know you um, get that, but just yeah. for our listeners no, here too, we say no. things when we know they're true. Yes,
1: yes, and well, I think I was under similar constraints when I wrote my follow-up story on it, but look, it is true. It, it, it is true they have... They haven't made the decision to touch them yet, but they're certainly canvassing options. And, and, and it's a deliberate strategy to put it out there, uh, you know, as they say in politics, test the water or float the balloon or whatever, and, and gauge the reaction. They, they want it. They want to curb them. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to sort of build a case. Certainly, Jim Chalmers has been building this case for recent weeks when he talks about these these enormous costs in those five unavoidable and desirable areas, as he calls them, defense, aged care, NDIS, uh, health and and interest payments on debt. Uh, And so, my my, my problem with it, I guess, is that all those five costs were very well documented before the election. Absolutely, there's there's no surprise. I mean, we knew back when the Royal Commission of Aged Care came out in February 21, how much that's what we're on the hook for that. We, you know, Morrison and Linda Reynolds pleaded desperately on the NDIS as it, as the actuary warned that was heading towards $60 billion a year and they were rebuffed and you know health we know how much that's costing defence um, and we knew how big the debt was and interest rates were going to go up so I, 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 I find it a bit hard to sort of accept that oh this has suddenly come out of nowhere and we've got these big costs so I I, I think you know this is a bit more out of the oh you know things are much worse than we thought sort of routine once getting into government and we need to <laughs> we need to make changes. I mean Adam Bant went to the election. You know, arguing the tax cuts were unaffordable because we had all these structural costs and other priorities. So he, you know, I think he's a bit more honest intellectually mm. on this, and, and he's, um, but I'm not sort of really buying the line from the government on it. I, I, I accept there's a cost problem with the tax cuts. They're expensive and there are competing priorities, but I don't accept the, the, this sort of argument that it's just, it's just reared up out of nowhere.
0: No. So does this debate happen? What's the strategy? Mm. With the authorization of the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office, in your view, and yes. what are they trying to land here?
1: I don't know, Patricia. It's a good question. I, I'm really flummoxed by it, because only a couple of weeks ago, Jim Chalmers and others were... I think making the quite plausible explanation that we don't, the tax cuts are two years away, we don't know what the economic situation is gonna be like then, let's leave it till then. You know, and, mm. and there's still a lot of people, Brendan O'Connor on your show again this morning, Patricia was making that same point. And I thought, you know, that. And, and for whatever, something's happened in the last week where they've just completely changed the language. You know, the, the October budget was going to be a bread and butter budget. And on Wednesday or, th- or Tuesday this week, Jim said it's now gonna be a tough decisions budget. From what I understand, they've decided they want to they want to hack at the tax cuts not 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 abolish them but just you know take take the top off them and uh, and it's Better they do it now than closer to the election. That seems to be the philosophy. Now Albanese hasn't given the green light yet. He's given the green light to go out there and, you know, test test it to talk about it, yeah. talk about it, and, and try and get you know support for it. But you know, he he's the one who's going to be in the gun. I mean, you know, don't forget integrity here. I mean, I, I, I'm quite you know I, lo- I love the fact that we spent the last three years you know accusing Scott Morrison you know Labor calling him a liar and you know the teal independents ran on the on this integrity ticket. But everyone's prepared to cut labour slack on these tax cuts as if breaking a promise are well fair enough. I mean... But, but well, the are right. they?
2: I mean, well, I think I, the, I spoke to the, the
1: Teals yesterday. All I rang all of them, and the only one, except oh, Sophie Scamps, didn't get back to me. But they're all of them, except Kylie Tink, said, "Oh, look, if, you, if circumstances change, they should axe the tax cuts. Oh yeah, so, I mean, all yeah.
2: of, all of the the Teals and and mm. the Greens are, and many mm. economists. But you know, Peter Dutton is already starting to make a meal no. of this, and yeah. and they are going to go on broken promises. I, I do, mm. I mean, I, I've I, you know, I'm on the record of saying I always thought these tax cuts would mm. be modified. I just don't think it's sustainable, given the sort of equity breakdown within it, that Labor could proceed as they are. They would mm. have to work out a way to change it. But I they do want to feel that whether... have the
1: election, Fran. They should have said it before. I mean, this is the Well, point. they didn't
2: want to open but
0: themselves up to it. Like, let's exactly. call it for what it was. Yeah. They didn't want to have a vote, a general yeah. election where people yeah. were fighting over tax because mm. they didn't think they could win it. Am I right, Phil? Yeah, that's right.
1: We all know they, 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 they really held their nose and voted for these tax cuts in after the 2019 election, not really, you know, not, not supporting them. And we, we had all those leaks out of Shadow Cabinet and the uh, party room where Jim Chalmers was, was one of the most vehement you know, opponents of it. So we know they've never really believed in stage three and they've thought they were mm. too generous and, and, and all those sorts of things. But the fact is they went to the election and you know, Anthony Albanese is on the record many times in that campaign. Saying locked in stone, you know, rolled, you know, rolled gold promise. There's a great one. Someone played yesterday who said, "You can plan." You know, these are legislated, they won't be touched. You can go ahead and plan on that certainty. And uh, so, yes, there may be an economic argument. There probably is an economic argument to to pair them back. But I don't think that argument has arisen in the wake of the election. I think that argument was there to be made before the election. Labor chose to make that. Sure, and I think that's valid.
2: But Mm. I'm interested in this change tactic this week. Have they Mm. jumped too early on opening the door to getting rid of or modifying parts of the safety tax cuts? Because. You know, I mean, they're going to raise ex- expectations and excitement now ahead of this budget. You know, I can't well, imagine they're going to announce this in this budget, are they?
1: Well, that's the intention if they do, but mm-hmm. it's, it, the messaging is so mixed at the moment. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's just better to let the economic circumstances make the argument for you. Sure, if we get, to, 20, we get to 2024 and things are really terrible. Um, no, but
0: the, I've got to interrupt on this, hmm. and I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Hmm. and Because... This whole, oh, we've got two years. What? So you just dump tax cuts just before they're about to start, do you?
2: That's insane.
1: Well, that's that. that sure, that, but they're, that, they're just but, a
2: few months into a a, a, a new government, you, and this is sort of like agencies, an emergency markets, budget. Markets, peop,
0: people, you need to plan. You don't sure. just go, oh, next well, month we're it. meant well, to start do, this tax cut. We're going to stop it now. Well, you <laughs> it's could do it. Well, you could do it. You could do it in the May budget.
1: you could do it. You could do it in the twenty twenty four budget. That's still a year before the election. But uh, I just think they're trying to create circumstances that don't exist yet. I mean. I made the point about the structural costs, you know, pretending they're sort of new. But, you know, the, the whole conflation with this thing in Britain, it's, it's you know, what the Britain thing was different. That, that, that was just lunacy that, that came out of nowhere. Okay.
0: I agree there was differences with Britain, <laughs> yeah. but do you not think that politically hmm. there was some wisdom in jumping on the UK no. live <laughs> example?
1: Uh, I I, I think to a large, a lot of people don't really understand what happened in Britain and they just see one government getting getting kicked in the can for, for trying to give tax cuts to the rich. Yeah, but we've actually sort of look at the detail. It's not that comparable. Sure, sure, no, no one at the moment, and Andrew Lee made this point uh, on Monday or Tuesday. Tuesday, he made this point. Our, our Reserve Bank and our government are working hand in glove at the moment, you know, fiscal and monetary policy to bring down inflation. What Liz Truss did is she brought in these ginormous tax cuts unannounced, you know, just out of nowhere. At the same time, they've got inflation at 20% and the, and the, and the Bank of England's raising rates, which is completely nuts. And I think... You know, if someone said today, let's bring the stage four tax cuts forward, that would be an equivalent. Let's bring them in now. Then that would be a a, a situation uh, equivalent to the UK. At the same time, the RBA is hitting people with rate rises, trying to slow down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I I
2: personally think that would be much better just not worrying about trying to get cover from the UK, but just Mm. working on mounting a very solid, persuasive, Mm. Reasonable yeah. economic argument for change. That's hmm. that's I think their best the 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 best tool in their which, toolkit Which they, and that's which what they, they will probably
1: do on. yeah, but 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 there's no getting around the integrity issue yeah? And and they're just that then we're talking about well, risks in politics and that that's the that's yeah. the that's the that's the sort of thing That's sort of you yeah. know, keeping Albanese. easy. This
0: is the very definition <laughs> of a wicked problem. Really. Yeah. It really is we have NDIS health defense <laughs> funding and calls for more funding for other things, which is very high. Mm. People want those services. They Mm. want those services. It's not like the public's like, no, 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 we want smaller government. They don't. They don't want smaller government. They want these things. We can't afford them (laughs) on the trajectory we're on. And the government um, has got a wicked problem, but it also has a politically wicked problem if it abandons an election promise. You're right, Phil. It is an election promise.
1: And and don't forget, don't forget, only 33% of people voted for Labor. They were reduced to their base at the last election. They need aspirational Mm. voters. And we used to say, you know, 180 grand isn't a lot of money in Sydney or Melbourne. I can tell you, it's not a lot of money anywhere in Australia at the moment if you've got a mortgage. You know, Adelaide, Mm. Canberra, you know, Perth, house prices are just weak, even in some of the regions, you know. So, and 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 wisely, you know, Labor's not playing this silly game that the Greens and the Australia Institute play about calling these people rich. They're not rich, you know, they're, they're better off than people on 80 grand, but you know, they're not rich. Remember when Julie Gillard announced the carbon price? Remember the, back in February 2011? <laughs> the opposition yep. was ripping itself to shreds at the time, you know, tensions between Julie Bishop and Tony Abbott over foreign aid cuts and all sorts of and I remember Julia Bishop saying that was the moment that United us. So you know, this. Yeah, I think Dutton's got a huge mountain to climb to try and win the next election, and I don't think it's possible at this stage, but this certainly gives them an issue. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although they fits,
0: have had yeah. two break ranks on their side too, which is just, I want to mm. note, Bridget Archer quoted mm. in The Guardian saying that stage three should be re-looked at, and uh, Russell Broadbent previously on ABC, uh, on my old show, afternoon mm. briefing, like that said the same thing. So... You know, like, they've got their own issues. Let's just talk very briefly, if we can, about another issue, which I think is a bit of a doozy, personally. Federal Liberal Party Vice President Tina McQueen uh, has been told there is no justifiable place on the executive for disloyalists. Uh, She, of course, you know, very much said something quite out there, I think, mm. in my view, pretty out there that... that, um, that Can I read you know, it? Can I read oh, the please, please Fran, I yes. love this
2: quote. She told this Conservative conference, um, and I'm quoting here, that the good thing about the last federal election is a lot of those lefties are gone. We should rejoice in that. People I've been trying to get rid of for a decade have gone. We need to renew with good Conservative candidates. She said this publicly. Mm, mm, at the CPAC conference.
1: Just lunacy. I mean, who celebrates the loss of seats? Oh, insane! You know, what, what party official celebrates? Well, I think Simon Birmingham as well within his you know, rights to say she should she should go. There's no way she should be an official of the Liberal Party celebrating, and not just not just seats, but blue ribbon seats. You know, seats that have been in the Liberal column since you know Menzies founded the Liberal Party, or the um, and, and seats that unless they can win back, they will never get back in the government again. And just just crazy stuff. And it just you know, it goes to sort of some of this silliness going on in the Liberal Party at the moment. I mean, you, you, you look at what happened in the last election. There's this sort of thing from the Conservatives that they've got to get more Conservative. The seats they lost were moderate seats, and they held all their Conservative seats. They held Bass and Bradman, Longman and, and Lindsay. These are the sort of seats you lose when the Conservatives turn on you. So. But you've got the conservatives in the Liberal party saying oh we've got to get even more conservative well that, that just means I probably lose more seats so the whole even before you celebrate the demise of the moderate it's it's a uh, it's not that um it, Tina McQueen doesn't even make sense you know in that regard yeah, and I, it's I just think, nasty yeah, too isn't yeah, it? You know, I mean it's you, turn, you sound like a
2: nasty party
1: don't you yeah really do and that, that yeah, that's the sort of stuff that scared people away f- from the Liberal Party towards teals and stuff like that and you know I think Dutton sort of right when he said the other day we don't have to go left or right we have just got to get back to you know old school stuff, um, yeah, old school values, and Nick Minchin made that same point on the weekend.
0: Uh, this stuff does not help them at mm. all. Phil, you helped us a bit understand the world that we live in, in the political mm. world at That's least. True. Thanks for coming on.
1: Oh, terrific. Thanks, guys. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order.
0: And it's time for our question time. My question is to Frank Um, Kelly. Here's a question, not from me, this is actually a question from (laughs) from Kath in Hobart. Shout out to you, Kath. Love Hobart. Um, And this is the question I'm going to just... Don't you
2: love Hobart? I
0: actually do, although sometimes it gets a bit chilly. With a good coat, it's great. Um, Why do journalists of all kinds, yourselves included, almost always refer pejoratively to the act of changing one's mind about a policy or issue as flip-flopping and or
2: back It's a good question. Why do we? It is a good question. I'm taken back to one of my first ever TV packages on 7th Report, which was about John Howard backflipping. and we actually used a little meme of um, Anthony Mundine when he used to do those backflips after he scored a try. <laughs> Every time we'd, we'd meant, you know... John Howard backflips on GST on petrol. And there was Anthony Mundine doing backflip and we had a series of them. Howard actually thought it was quite funny, but um, I believe. Um, But I think there is a a difference. I take take on board exactly what you say, Catherine. In fact, I've been trying to check myself lately because it's easy to do it. You know, Labor, for instance, changed its mind quite quickly uh, when it was new in government on cutting off payments for COVID. And I said at the time, I made a point of saying, saying that I don't think we should dismiss this as a backflip because that's pejorative. It's actually changing a mind because it was, you know, they took advice and the advice said, don't do this, it's not good policy. So they didn't do it and we should welcome that. And I think it is very easy to get into the language of flip-flop and backflip and they are pejorative. But there are some times when decisions are changed because of political pressure, not because it's the right policy, Decision to do, you know, and sometimes there's not good reasons for changing. It's under pressure from cert- certain lobby groups that have particular power or the voice of government for particular reasons. And in that case, I think it is fair to to say that you know a government that's under pressure is you know acting weakly, responding weakly, and and changing a decision um, not for the right reasons. So I think sometimes it's fair to call it a, a flip flop. But um, I think we do need to be more careful about it and acknowledge that you know a a, a good government will listen to advice and will change their decisions if their decisions aren't good policy. That's what we should want them to do, isn't it?
0: Uh, yeah, we, we should. But equally, I suppose, yes, the sort of pejorative language I completely concede is you know, sensationalist and the rest of it, which you know journalists are guilty of. But equally, like this debate we've been talking about before, we feel around tax cuts it might be, might be, and I say might. I'm not. I don't have a view, but might be reasonable to reconsider it if the 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 country's finances have declined further and all of this. But equally. If you've made a promise, how can you not call it a backflip when you've made a really stern promise to the electorate? Like, yeah, it is a statement of fact that it's a flip. Uh, A flip is seen as negative, but perhaps maybe it's not negative. I suppose that's why voters get a chance to vote every three years. Um, They make the determination about whether the right judgment was made. Um, I think generally reporting would improve if we all just, you know, cooled our jets sometimes and just told the stories rather than having to hype them up. But uh, I, take the, I take the criticism about, you know, setting it up as a negative per se without being able
2: to be more nuanced about it. Yeah. Kath, great question. Thank you. Thanks for putting us under the pump.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. I do think um, journalists should be held to account. I'm big on that. All right. That's it from us, at least for this week. Um, of course, it's not it from Fran though. I mean, or me. I'm, I'm still on breakfast every day, but Fran's actually got, <laughs> frankly, happening on Friday night, so you can actually watch her again, like on this the Friday. Friday
2: first show, eight thirty. <sighs> be there, be square on the couch
0: watching. I'm, it. I'm home Friday night. I'm I'm going to King Stingray on Saturday night, but Friday night I'm home, Fran. So I'm your viewer. I'm locked in. That's it from the party room this
2: week. Remember to follow us on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. P.K. Kingstingray, that is very cool. Lucky you. I know. I'm really excited. Got a babysitter and everything. Um, That's it from the party room this week. See you, Fran. See you, P.K.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great
1: ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.